It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 286 for April 1st, 2012. This week, using your house's wiring system to distribute the internet. A look at content-aware move in Adobe Photoshop. What to do when you have one kind of file and you need another. And in short circuits, Microsoft and the feds go out on a raid. And you're going to want the latest new invention from Apple. As handy as Wi-Fi systems are, they're not always the right choice for use at home. Maybe the Wi-Fi signal isn't sufficient in some parts of the house, or maybe you just have a device that can't maintain a Wi-Fi connection. This is a problem that I encountered at home, and after trying several Wi-Fi solutions, I decided to install a Powerline network adapter. Problem solved. In this case, the signal strength was sufficient, but neither of two Wi-Fi adapters that I installed on a desktop computer could reliably acquire or hold a connection. One device always acquired the signal without a problem, but then lost it several times a day. The replacement for that device could maintain the connection, but the process of acquiring a connection sometimes took half an hour or more. My wife needed this connection for work, and she was not amused. The needs were modest. All work-related activities on the computer were text-based, so speed wasn't really important. We did need reliability. I bought a pair of Netgear 85 megabits per second powerline network adapters, plugged one in and connected it to the router, then plugged the other one in by the remote desktop and connected it to the Ethernet port. The computer saw the network connection, and that's the end of the story. Now true, it's only an 85 megabits per second connection, but that's far more than sufficient for the need. If a higher speed had been needed, Netgear also makes a Powerline AV500 adapter kit. It promises up to 500 megabits per second. Weasel words in the description there, up to, are Netgear's way of admitting that distance and line noise can adversely affect data speed. Wi-Fi is generally a better choice, in my opinion, because it doesn't rely on hardware that must be installed near each device that will join the network and therefore the devices aren't tied down to a specific location. But with the increasing number of internet-connected devices that are stationary, televisions for example, powerline networking may finally take off. This isn't exactly new technology. It was around last century, and I recall visiting an off-site exhibit at PC Expo in New York City that previewed a dozen or more internet-connected devices, such as radios, picture frames, and even refrigerators. The dot-com implosion and other limitations may have delayed the introduction of these devices, but now, nearly 15 years later, the reality is emerging. When you're setting up a home network, you have three choices. Run multiple Cat5 or Cat6 wires from some central switching location, maybe in your basement, to each and every room. Now, this is a great solution if you're building a new house. Otherwise, it's probably a non-starter. So that leaves Wi-Fi, which works for most people, and Powerline networking, the choice that most people actually overlook. Powerline networking is often easier to set up than Wi-Fi. Literally, the user needs only to plug the devices in and start using them. 
Setting up power line networking doesn't change the way your outlets work. You still plug things into them for power, just as you always have. But now, data signals also travel on the wires that run through the house. You'll need at least two adapters, of course, one located near your router and the other adjacent to whichever device you want to connect to the network. Adding more devices requires only the addition of one new adapter near the new device, and the adapters don't have to be the same brand or have the same performance specifications. Basic adapters, such as the ones I'm using, cost about $60 for a pair. They come with Ethernet cables. Faster adapters will double or triple the price. The most common mistake that people make when installing a power line adapter is to plug the adapter into a surge protector, thinking they're protecting it. Well, they are, but unless the surge suppressor has been designed to accommodate power line networking, and most of those have not, then it won't work. Power line adapters face challenges that other devices don't need to be concerned with. Data needs to be converted to a signal that can be transmitted on copper wires, of course, but the carrier signal, in this case the power company's 60 hertz 110 volt power, is, well, it's a less than perfect sine wave, and the sine wave can be distorted by line noise, spikes, surges, and brownouts. The designers needed to account for all of those problems, and generally, they've done a pretty good job. While Wi-Fi networks have an effective range of about 150 feet, power line networking devices can sometimes exceed 1,000 feet, enough for even the largest house. Most of the companies that manufacture networking gear also make power line network adapters, but often these are given minimal space on the company's website, and vendors don't give them as much space as they deserve in catalogs, online, and in-store. The next time you need to add a device to your home network, Powerline networking is worthy of being considered. few versions of Photoshop, Adobe has added several new content-aware features. The CS6 release, now out in public beta and scheduled for release by mid-year, raises the bar to include content-aware move. When I watched an Adobe presenter show this feature the first time, I could barely believe what I saw. And now that I have used the feature for myself with my own photograph, I still suspect that a wizard might be hiding somewhere behind the computer. I started with a relatively low-quality image of my daughters on a rock in southern Ohio. They are in the middle of the frame, and I thought moving them forward and to the left would be a good exercise. So I drew a very loose selection around them, a very loose selection. Unlike selections for many other kinds of effects, content-aware move actually seems to work better with a looser selection. You'll see samples of all the images from beginning to end on the TechBiter Worldwide website. After making the selection, I selected Content-Aware Move and dragged the selection to its new location. Photoshop began to process the image for a while. Both the original image and the new image were on the screen side by side. It processed the image, and it actually did an amazingly good job. There was a little bit of a kind of a ruffle in the rocks on the right-hand side of the image, 
and there was a little bit of a shadow on Katie's left, on the left side of the image. So I used the clone stamp to fix the area left of Katie. That took a few seconds and then did a little preliminary work on the rock on the right side of Elizabeth with what's called content-aware patch. More about content-aware patch in a little bit. I did a little bit of additional working with the clone tool, and I was able to finish the rocks in a way that looks more or less realistic. In fact, I suspected most people wouldn't notice the manipulation unless they were looking for it. A few weeks ago, I showed you how Adobe Lightroom could improve a nearly 10-year-old photo of my older daughter, but I left the image with a telephone pole growing out of her head. The photographer is supposed to watch for errors such as this, but apparently I was asleep at the shutter that day. If you don't remember how bad the original image was, you can see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. And what Lightroom 4 came up with is really a dramatic improvement. But there's still that telephone pole and some wires and stuff. Well, in Photoshop 6, I selected the region with the telephone pole and the wires, in previous versions, content-aware fill would have been my tool of choice, but that wouldn't have worked very well. In fact, you'll see what would happen if I had used content-aware fill. Content-aware fill simply looks all around the selected area and tries to average out all of the information from around the selected area into the selected area. In this case, not a very good effect, because it tried to average Elizabeth's face with the sky. Bad choice. Well, I changed from content-aware fill to content-aware patch. When you choose content-aware patch, you're able to choose the area that Photoshop will use to replace the area you've selected. The result, although not exactly perfect, is still far better than I could have achieved with content-aware fill. Instead of a lot of additional work being needed to fix the image, just a little was needed. Take a look at the final image. You see any evidence of that telephone pole? Oh, and another thing. When you're working with type, Photoshop will show you samples. It's done that for several versions. Tiny samples. Who can make any sense of those little tiny samples? Well, now there's an option to change the size of the sample, all the way from small to huge. Or if you want, you can eliminate the preview entirely. I decided to give extra large a try, and wow, what a difference. Now I can see exactly what the typeface I might select looks like. This is a small and seemingly insignificant feature, but designers will use it to great advantage. Earlier this week, Adobe let me know that the CS6 preview has been downloaded more than half a million times in less than a week. That suggests a strong interest in the new features, and given those new features, I can understand why. And here's some good news. If you'd like to learn more about what Photoshop CS6 has in store for you, check out the free two-and-a-half-hour introduction by Photoshop legend Deke McClelland at lynda.com. You'll find a link to that presentation from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And that's right, I said it was free. The entire program, all two-and-a-half hours, free to anyone. Doesn't matter whether you're a subscriber or not. Free is a very good price.
You may have noticed this already. There is no shortage of file formats. Not long ago, I had an old Technology Corner real media file that I needed to provide to a law firm in England. But the law firm wanted an MP3 file. I never really liked real media files, even when that was the only reasonable way to stream audio. So, the real media player wasn't present on my computer. Now, I could have installed the player, played the file, captured the audio, and then saved it as an MP3. Instead, I downloaded a free converter program and used that. The download I used specializes in converting real media files to MP3, but later I found an online service that does a lot more, even if it doesn't handle real media files. The basic assumption is this. You have a file, either on your computer or on the internet. The file is in one format, but you'd like to have it in some other format. Easy. Visit the Convert Files website, choose a file, or choose a place on the internet where the file exists, select the file format, select the format you'd like to have output. Click Convert. Done. You can start with any of 18 video file formats, 9 audio file formats, 5 image formats, 5 ebook formats, 3 presentation formats, 13 document formats, 6 compressed file formats, and convert to any other reasonable format. Now, converting a Microsoft Word file to a movie file wouldn't be reasonable, of course, so don't even try that. Oh, and speaking of video, Convert Files supports 27 file sharing sites, from YouTube and Vimeo to well, some that are decidedly in the red light district. The system will convert files up to 200 megabytes. If the file is larger, you'll be directed to Video Toolbox, which handles a smaller subset of files, but has a limit of 600 megabytes. When the conversion is complete, Convert Files displays a message that includes a download link. If you miss the link, you still have 24 hours to go pick up the converted file before it vaporizes. And if you're thinking of trying to convert files that are protected by some sort of digital rights management, forget it. For more information, you can visit the convertfiles.com website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you have some old real media files you'd like to convert, try downloading the Jodix converter. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. In short circuits, when U.S. Marshals raided office buildings in Pennsylvania and Illinois last week, they were accompanied by technicians from Microsoft, the target command and control points for botnets. If you've been off the planet for the past decade or so, a botnet consists of hundreds or thousands of lobotomized computers that send all that delightful spam we receive with such enjoyment every day. The techies and the marshals came with warrants deployed, and when they left, the servers had been deactivated. Earlier, Microsoft had filed a civil suit as it continued its efforts to bring down some of the criminal operations that are a plague on the Internet. Although Apple and, to a lesser extent, Linux operating systems have taken some market share from Microsoft, Microsoft is still the clear leader when it comes to desktop computing, so it has the biggest footprint to protect. Clearly, law enforcement seems to be outgunned when it comes to cybercrime, and a former federal prosecutor, Richard Boscovich, who now works for Microsoft, is credited with putting together the operation that combined the company's technological knowledge with the Fed's law enforcement capabilities. 
This isn't the first Microsoft foray into thwarting crime. Court orders obtained by Microsoft previously brought down other botnets. Boscovich compares Microsoft's actions to a basic neighborhood watch program. The crooks will rebuild, of course, but maybe the combined efforts to shut them down will eventually pay off. going to want one of these. Apple CEO Tim Cook is expected to announce a product aimed at improving the intelligence of Americans. It's called the iThink, and it's about the size of a first-generation iPod, but instead of headphones, the device's wires terminate in sticky pads that are designed to be placed on the user's head up near the temples. The technology is so revolutionary that it will be limited to distribution in the United States only. The iThink is designed to stimulate the brain's frontal lobe. That's the part of the brain most closely associated with reasoning, planning, parts of speech, movement, emotions, and problem solving. Cook says that the external wires will be eliminated in later versions. The company, he says, is working on a way to connect the pads to the device via Bluetooth technology, but he admits a second interim step may be required, possibly a small connector attached near the back of the head. According to Stanford University cognitive research scientist Apralnea Durak, who set up test panels to work with Apple testing the device, improvements in critical thinking have been substantial. The improvements are in the range of 0.5% to 0.9%. Apple says it's time for Americans to think different literally. Apple has given Americans what it can in terms of hardware, Cook said. Now we need smarter users, and I think we have conclusively shown that the iThink will help create those users. iThink will be coupled with a new desktop-based application called iMemories and a cloud-based service called iRemember. These will be used to store, replay, and share new ideas, thoughts, and dreams, and possibly nightmares if the user signs the appropriate privacy and security agreements. Although the device will be manufactured in China, the U.S. Departments of Commerce and Justice will not allow the iThink to be exported to other countries once they are imported into the United States. It would be disastrous if these fell into the hands of certain hostile regimes, said Eimnet N. Stein, a senior threat analyst at the Department of Justice. Cook says the first generation of iThink will go on sale before the end of the year. It will be priced around $999. He notes that a second-generation device should be ready no more than three months later. The iThink 2, or possibly it would be the i2Think, name hasn't been set yet. It's expected to double the original iThink's ability to improve cognitive performance, and it should sell for about half the price of the original. For more information about the iThink, do check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. 
I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.